Hello, and welcome to Happy Tears! I'm Brandon. And I'm Nick. What up, dude? How are you? I am doing a little bit less than great. <laughs> <laughs> less than great. That is, honestly, a little less than great is the best that I ever get. Yeah. So <laughs> that's Good. the top of my spectrum. Cool. So it's 1969, Brandon. Yep. And Hollywood is changing. Audiences are not responding to the same westerns and cop shows they used to. The old guard of Hollywood elites is starting to be replaced by the new wave generation. And everywhere you look, goddamn hippies. In the midst of all this change, America is about to be rocked by the shocking events of the Manson murders in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And then, jump to the mid-90s, we find a woman who is fighting to survive between her arms-dealing boss, the feds that are constantly watching her, and an unlikely friendship with a bail bondsman. In his send-up to 1970s black exploitation films, Quentin Tarantino gives us Jackie Brown. We've got a Quentin Tarantino doubleheader today. Oh, double feature? Double feature. Double feature. Doubleheader. This is sports. <laughs> it can be. This is not sports talk radio. <laughs> In the meantime, we've been watching those movies, but what else have you been been doing? I finished Catastrophe on Amazon. Which one? I think it's four seasons. It's the Rob Delaney. I've always heard great things about that Dude, show, and you never watch it. once. And I think he's so funny. Yeah, it's great. I yeah, I watched the last episode and had some had some happy tears for Did sure. Did you? Yeah. Gene always looks back and is like, "Are your eyes wet?" <laughs> <laughs> that is whole test does the same thing. It's like, so oh, funny. It's like, come on, man, how are yours not? As I've mentioned to you several times, big fan of the West Wing over yes. here. Equally as big of a fan of the West Wing Weekly podcast. I'm actually wearing my West Wing Weekly okay, okay, what's next shirt right now. You nerd. I know. I know it. <laughs> there have been several times where on that podcast they've had other people do like renditions of the theme song, which yeah. is just an orchestral piece. And there have been many times where just the theme song to the... <laughs> West Wing has brought Dude. me to tears when sung a cappella by the Swingles. <laughs> so shout out to the West Wing Weekly because it's love that. one of my faves. You know what I caught recently that I think you watched right when it dropped, but the Aziz Ansari stand-up special yeah. right now. That was really good. Uh, I really appreciated the way it was shot by Spike Jones and his crew. Yeah, it was really different. And I also uh, really appreciated how candid... Aziz was with specifically kind of like the scandalous things that have happened right. in the recent past mm -hmm. with with that whole thing of being accused of not being a great guy. Yeah. And then um, the overall message at the end was essentially like, it's a pretty standard thing. I hear a lot of being present and living your life and enjoying the moments and stuff. But, yeah. But the way he crafts it and the way he, he talks about, you know, as your parents get older and, and the amount of time you get to spend with them. And he, th the way he puts things into perspective, he uses numbers in a really great way. Yeah. A little kid being there added. Tyler. <laughs> Tyler. The 10 year old kid that was in the <laughs> front row of an Aziz show. Wow. Just perfect fuel for Aziz during a recorded show. Was for sure. Serendipitous. I also have been listening to the new Willow Smith mm. 
EP? No, it's probably an album. I think it's eight tracks or nine. When, oh, that, when can, does, that can go either way. Right. When does it, who, who makes those rules on, on when it's an EP and when it's an album? I don't know. I mean, I think EPs are in the under, like six or under kind of range. I don't know. So it is tracks. Extended it's number of tracks, right? Is that, is that the yeah. only criteria? I think, I can it fit on one side of a record? Is that it? Oh, I had never thought about <laughs> I don't know. the I actual think it, physical media of it. <laughs> yeah, but now you're yeah, right. It doesn't matter. I mean, there's things they call mixtapes, playlists even. Yeah. Anyway, the I'm going to call it an album. Cool. The Willow Smith album. I believe it's just called Willow. Mm-hmm. Uh, really good. And I've never listened to her music before, but I really like Jaden Smith. I really liked Sire. I had, still have to do a deeper dive on Eris, which is Jaden's most recent thing that came out like a month ago. But Willow Smith's album, she does a lot of layered vocals, pretty much beginning to end. It's very, it's almost kind of trance-like. Woozy. It is woozy. Woozy is a good word for it. I enjoy, I really like it. There's like two or three tracks that, I would love to be a person that likes albums. Yeah. I think I would describe you that way. Would you agree? Yeah, for sure. Although I like listening to an album from time to time. Yeah. More often, what I'll do is I'll listen to it three or four times, and and then pick out pick out the f- three tracks that I really like, and they mm-hmm. they go in my you know saved tracks in Spotify, and then I don't really revisit the album often. So there are two or three tracks from this that I that I really really like, and the yeah. rest I I en- I enjoyed for the most part, but I'm more of a singles guy, I think. Yeah. Now. Uh, the other thing that I could think of from uh, the past week was just I went to the Me Without You page of the Lion concert. And two bands that I grew up loving. And so that was a fun, fun little throwback for me. I try to see Me Without You whenever they come through town. But Pedro the Lion just, well, they both recently put out albums. Pedro the Lion was a more recent release. And it's a really good, really good album. There's a a song called Yellow Bike on there. It's really, uh, really good. Pulls out your heartstrings. I like that. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, it just has like a real nostalgic vibe about it. During the show, they had a really cool visuals along with that, just the streets of Phoenix and stuff. Very but cool. Once upon a time, let's do it. All right, what's the matter, partner? It's official, old buddy. Well, it has been. On August night and the leaves hanging down and the grass on the ground. Here I am, flat on my ass. Who, who I got living next door to me? I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this? That's me. I play Miss Carlson, the klutz. So I have my notes, as you, as I've shown you, on little Alamo Draft House order Shout cards. Shout out Alamo, dude. Because <laughs> I forgot my notebook. Yeah. That's good that they provided those for you. Yeah, it's true. Didn't pay for anything, but... <laughs> That's also true. So Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is Quentin Tarantino's ninth film. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, as well as Margot Robbie plays a supporting role. So Leonardo DiCaprio plays an actor that was popular in the 1950s and the early 60s. His name's Rick Dalton, and Cliff Booth is his stunt double. Rick is going through a little bit of a kind of an existential crisis because uh, Hollywood is changing, and he's kind of part of the old guard. The new, hip, new wave is kind of crashing through Hollywood, and he's losing his edge. He's feeling washed up, and really all he has is his buddy Cliff, who was a stunt double, but is getting less and less work as a stunt double. So Rick Dalton lives next to Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski, 
who famously, Sharon Tate and some house guests of hers, were murdered in 1969 by members of the Charles Manson family. And there is an interweaving of Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth storyline as well as the Charles Manson family. And so this film is actually kind of a historical fiction reimagining of the events of the 1969 Charles Manson murders as well as the direction of Hollywood in general at that time. Right. And I think initially people thought there wasn't going to be more Manson family involved in this. People got the idea from the description or whatever. So it was a nice surprise that it seemed to focus more on these two characters than than it did. It was just, that was a side piece of the film, I think. So here's where I want to start is, how much about this film did you know going in? Because honestly, I don't know that I'd ever read a description. Yeah. And therefore did not know that the Manson family was in any way going to be a focus. Yeah, I wasn't one of those people who thought it was going to be a main focus. I think I saw him in the trailer for it and knew that he'd be a part of this thing, but I wasn't like banking on that being the central thrust of this movie. Okay, and so the next question I have is, how much about the Manson murders did you know going into this film? I knew an an overview, like I got the, the Manson family stuff and knew who Sharon Tate was and kind of where that was headed, but I did not know particulars like the Jay Sebring character I didn't know much about and stuff like just the the details I was kind of washed over. Looking back after watching this movie, I learned a lot more. So I was woefully ignorant (laughs) going into this movie. I really didn't know who Sharon Tate was. So like, I I really didn't know that this movie had anything to do with the Manson murders because number one, the trailer doesn't really give that away other than they mention that Margot Robbie plays Sharon Tate. Right. So not understanding who she was and her historical significance in American pop culture didn't make that connection. Mm -hmm. So the first time I saw this film, a lot of stuff went way over my head because I think part of enjoying this film is having the historical context. Correct. It really wasn't until you and I went and saw it together the first time I listened to the Film Spotting podcast right. where they reviewed it and then highly insisted that if you don't know a lot about this these events, to listen to Karina Longworth's You Must Remember This podcast where she did a 12-episode run about the Manson murders. And I think you and I both- We both did. Listened to that. Yep. And man, it was good. Was. It was a tough listen at times because they do accurately- <laughs> they go into detail on on the kind of gruesome murders. Yeah, really tough. It was tough, but it was I really appreciated the level of detail they went into on all the different parties involved. They did full episodes just on like Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski and how they met and what their relationship was like. They did full episodes on Charlie Manson and specific relationships he had with yeah. like uh Dennis Wilson of mm-hmm. the Beach Boys and and other people. And yeah, and his early life. And so that 12 episode arc Filled in all the gaps. <laughs> for sure. And more, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. so so then I went back and saw the film a second time after listening to that podcast. And I liked the film a lot more because I understood what the hell was happening. Yeah. So that's some of the backstory on at least just you and I coming from having context makes it more enjoyable. At least it did for me. And yeah. I, I was able to go back and see it a second time. I think you only got to see it the, the one time, correct? Correct. In the one time you saw it, what'd you think? I I have 
some pretty mixed feelings about this movie. I think one, like we were just talking about, I think the more you know about that time period, the more you will enjoy parts of this movie, which I kind of think is somewhat of a fault. Like, I don't I don't feel like going into a movie, you need to know a ton of context before seeing it. To be fair, this is a like a huge event, um, but we are pretty removed from it. So that, along with what seemed like Hollywood Easter eggs, to me felt a little like someone who's trying to please the L.A. audience. Do you have any of those Hollywood Easter eggs at the top of your head? If you have insider knowledge of Hollywood, the way things work there, and the obviously the particular events involving the the Manson murders and stuff, you get a lot more, you're just a lot more connected to this. And it is, it does seem like it's a, a movie dedicated to, to old Hollywood. And I mean, it's apparent that over the years, Quentin Tarantino is like a film geek. Oh, for sure. And he really plays into, into that on this film. And he just like, I don't know, particularly because there's not a ton of story. I mean, there's these two characters, which I think are the strongest part of the story between Rick and Cliff. It seemed like it was a nice hangout film between these two at first and turned into something different. But a lot of what I was like really into and loved about the movie was the the setting and the atmosphere, like what, what he does to create this world of 1969 between uh, the set pieces and all the little things that are he had a high attention to detail going into this and creating this world and i think that should be applauded i think it's it sucks you in and it and and that's what kept me interested but um and then the relationship between rick and cliff it's not all but i think that that's a one of the main reasons why i did like parts of this movie but besides that i'm trying to figure out if i think that's a like a gimmicky way for me to like it it sounds like you kind of feel that the film kind of sacrifices story for fan service right which may be nice but is at the end of the day a little shallow maybe in that it, there's not a lot to it other than right and i and Playboy i do mansion here's this here's old hollywood neon signs right and like seeing that. those things on the screen is a really cool thing like the art direction is really great yeah i agree and we could we'll go into more about like specific scenes that i i really liked but all of the like those pieces i don't think make up a great film as a whole right although there's a bunch of, there's things that i really do like about it yeah your first point where you were talking about how much prior knowledge do you need to have to go into a movie to enjoy it? Right. I Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely didn't... I liked it fine the first time, but I, I really enjoyed it a lot more the second time once I had done, like, 10 hours of research. Not that yeah. I had to do that much. I could have watched, like, one or two YouTube videos and probably gotten enough. Mm-hmm. But I do agree that I think that the movie should do the work for you in terms of providing context. Right. And, or what I mean by the Easter eggs is like, there's characters from history that pop up and there's an enjoyment and a connection that an engagement that you have uh, when those characters come in. But if those were just normal characters, you wouldn't have, it seems like that, that sort of a tool or whatever is throwing in characters from history. Like, Oh, that's fascinating. This actor is playing this character that I didn't know was going to be in this movie. Right. I think that just that alone is a little fan service, see how, how much it happens throughout the movie. I agree. I mean, cause like seeing Steve McQueen was kind of cool. Right. Exactly. But, and he did, he kind of did serve a purpose cause he kind of told the story. He gave the background on 
she's with that guy. She used to be with that guy. She she talks through the history yeah. of Roman Polanski and Jay Sebring and Sharon Tate. And I don't I don't mind that they they do that because obviously it is cool to see those characters on screen. It just like I said, I was I was definitely into it uh, the whole time. I think there was just something that I felt was uh, missing, and, and I'll have more to say on that. Yeah, I mean, this movie is definitely a love letter to old Hollywood, to the movies, even a nod to himself and the Inglorious Bastards. Not flashback, but oh, you know, I wrote down Quentin Tarantino loves killing Nazis, <laughs> which is fair. Yeah. More power to you if that's all you want to do is kill Nazis and yeah. slave owners. I would, I would watch all those movies. You got to add those feet, though, dude. You get, oh, my God. So many shots of feet in both this and, and Jackie, Jackie Brown. Brown. <laughs> Lots of feet in Jackie Brown. Oh, yeah. We'll get to that later. I did think it started kind of weird. Like, it throws you in this world and the, the uh, conversation he has with Mr. Sh- Schwartz. Schwartz. <laughs> or is it, yeah. Not Schwartz. You say it better. I know. Schwartz. Ah, it's not Schwartz, it's Schwaz. <laughs> so straight from the beginning, the conversation he has uh, with Mr. Sh- uh, Schwartz. Schwartz. It sets kind of a weird tone. Like, I feel like that, that scene is pretty drawn out, especially because, like, looking back, he doesn't have much to do with the film. I mean, it gives you context of Rick's life, but... Yeah, and I feel like Al Pacino is pretty sorely underutilized in this movie. Well, that's yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, he doesn't, like... He sh- shows up one other time for a second, but right. And, but but in like all he does is really give some backstory. Yeah, and and I, I don't know. I just he, he's such a good actor, and and he can play comedy and drama both so well. Like so, that's kind of where that's kind of where I started off. But then you get some some great scenes where like the soundtrack starts to shine. Yeah, and you've got some great car scenes, which I think are great throughout this whole movie. Oh, uh, if nothing else, Tarantino just loves. Driving. Driving, man. <laughs> this movie loves driving. Yeah. Anytime anyone goes anywhere, in, in lots an of scripts, it's just like, cut two. Right. They're here now. This, we we sit in the car with them. We're outside the car shooting, you know, from car to car. Right. They're, they're, a, that's a great shot when you're when you're shooting from car to car. It's Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. And the way that Brad Pitt as a driving stunt driver is weaving through traffic. Yeah. It's all shot really beautifully. All the the driving is so much fun. The music that they choose, the soundtrack's great. The music they choose to put to all the driving, A plus. Yeah, and I think the cinematography is pretty good. I didn't think it was like anything super special throughout the whole film, but I thought particularly those driving scenes were really good. I agree. Uh, as well as the music that was playing every time they were in the car. Pretty early on too, you get the the Brad Pitt trailer scene where you kind of get a, an idea of where he's living in comparison to you know where Rick Dalton is and kind of the status of the the people in Hollywood as well for sure we we see Rick Dalton's house right before that it's on Cielo Drive it's a very nice home yeah and then Brad Pitt pulls off and a his own car which mm-hmm. is a lot more beat up than the than Rick Dalton's car that they're driving around yeah but I love the way that when Brad Pitt gets into his own car and pulls he backs out of the driveway and pulls off he takes off <laughs> yeah. like a stunt driver yeah. man he hauls ass and yeah, that was great. awesome. But yeah, you're right. And then when he gets to his home, it's a trailer out in in a like a field behind a drive-in movie theater. He's living a lot less comfortably than yeah, than a Dalton, different life. But sure. he see, but it seems like his character is totally okay with that, right? Which I think is cool. I think it adds a lot of depth to his character. That whole scene, I think it's shot really well. I think the editing is great for that scene. The whole you get the relationship between him and his dog, who 
this dog's great in this movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, but the whole, like, cut scenes with the, the dog food and everything, oh, uh, I think are really sliding great. Sliding out of that can. Yeah. So gross, but also really cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, And you just see how he lives and uh, how he's kind of comfortable in that space. I think it's really good. And I think Brad's really great in his acting in that scene in particular and throughout really shine. But like I said earlier, I think the one thing besides Rick and Cliff's relationship is just how immersive this world is. And that's what kept me interested in some of the, even the lulls. So if you're familiar with the story of the Manson murders and Cielo Drive and stuff, you know when they move in that you know the street. And so when they show that Roman Plansky and Sharon Tate are living next door, you know that that they're going to be a part of this story. But I do think showing that so early on especially for the audiences that know, you you set up, <laughs> I, th- I think they build a tension with that and then wait so long that it kind of fizzles before you get any more of that story. And we get this too, how Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie, I mean, I think she's underutilized in the, the film or she's just underdeveloped maybe is a better way to say that. Yeah, it definitely, especially because the ending of the movie, which I won't spoil yet, we'll talk yeah. about that later, but it, it has so much to do with her character, even though she's not present right. for a lot of that scene or whatever. Mm-hmm. I agree that, that they don't really develop her character enough I did really enjoy some of the ways that she was utilized when she went and saw the film that she was in. Yeah, The first time I watched it was fine. The second yeah. time I watched it, once I really understood the gravity of, of everything that was right. happening, was really, really great. Uh, yeah, I agree. This kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with without the context mm-hmm. of all the real world stuff that happened. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, so the first time I saw it, I didn't really understand who Sharon Tate was. Right. And so watching her arc in this movie, I... I went home and said, I don't know why she was even in that movie. She right. had nothing to do with any of the story. Yeah. And then the second time I saw it, I totally get it. But it it goes back to this question of how much baggage or how much info do you need to have going into a film to be able to enjoy it? Yeah. From my point of view, it's not just just that, although that plays a role. I'm thinking from like how I know that they're portraying her as this uh, kind of happy-go-lucky person um she's often dancing or kind of like jubilantly walking oh, or yeah. things like that so i get that and portraying that side i just think they could have you know given her some more more to say and i think margot could have pulled that off i know they're being careful with someone's legacy but i right i think that they could have done what they did and added some more maybe taken out some leg shots and added a few lines of dialogue or something <laughs> very well said anything that that gives me any sense of Really who she is in terms of what does she want? What are her hopes and dreams? Obviously she goes, there's a scene where she goes and sees a movie that she is in and she sits and watches and she plays the kind of klutz, the funny one. Right. When the audience laughs, you see her face light up. She's so happy and it's, and it's really nice and it's a great scene. I agree. And I love, you know, anytime she does something in the movie and she gets an audience reaction. She gets so happy. You watch her sitting in the in the theater, and she's like mirroring the uh, <laughs> the like kung fu moves right. that, that Bruce Lee taught her. Yeah, and she is almost childlike in her giddiness that she's on the big screen. But that's the closest we get to understanding anything about who she is. Yeah, exactly. And and you're right. I think if they would have developed anything further, it would have been better. Well, I would love to to just note. 
the um the hippie fairy sirens the girls that we later learn are members of the manson family Mm -hmm. the first time we see them they're digging through a dumpster looking for food Mm -hmm. and they're singing this chant song thing that is kind of creepy and weird and and they do seem like you know sirens in the way of of greek mythology that they sing the song to lure in men or or <laughs> yeah there's kind of floaters pray. yeah and they definitely give off that vibe even more when cliff booth aka brad pitt visits their home at spawn ranch because he gives uh one of the hippies late, who we later learned is named pussycat mm-hmm. he gives her a ride home yeah I think she did a great job, and really, I think all of the acting is top-notch pretty much throughout. I mean, Agreed. other small, like, I think Pacino, I, I think more could have been done with his character, but I think he did a great job with what he was given. I think the little girl that plays across <laughs> of uh, Rick Dalton's character when, mm-hmm. they're, when they're shooting that TV show is really great. I think Timothy Oliphant does a good job. Bruce Dern has a really quick cameo, I guess, and and uh, I think all of the acting is great. And I I think Leo and Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie are all excellent. Even though I wish Sharon Tate had been given more to work with, but mm-hmm. specifically, I think Brad Pitt really shines in this movie. I mean, another great trailer scene, obviously, was the Rick Dalton's little mini freakout in the trailer, and I I think that I mean that was one of the the points in the actual trailer for the movie. Uh, that was a, a funny moment, but it holds a lot more weight in the context of what's going on in the movie. I think is great. I, Leo does a really awesome job during during that bit. I mean, it's funny and devastating at the same time, and he really captures the washed up insecurity of of an aging actor really mm-hmm. well. Yeah, <laughs> he's had a really great career, and yeah. I don't know that he, it's ever lulled, Mm-mm. but uh, he does a great job with acting like it <laughs> yeah and you believe him when he when he nails when he nails that bit later on in the film just the look on his face is great i mean it's similar to the uh, reaction sharon tate's character has when she's watching herself being proud of themselves yeah um well let me ask you this in yeah. the context of the story yeah do you think rick dalton's a good actor not i mean good not great like he does a fine performance for what that scene was but i think leo does a really <laughs> You know, give him more credit as an actor being able to portray an actor who thinks they did really well. In the grand scheme of things, I don't think it was an amazing acting performance. It fit the the scene and the, the type of uh, film that he or was it a TV show? Yeah, what they yeah. were filming was a pilot for a TV yeah, show. Yeah. yeah, I know. Just watching Rick Dalton act because you see some you see some different stuff. You see some. Uh, scenes from his old TV show that was canceled. Right. And then you watch him act kind of in the moment, mm-hmm. so to speak. You know, you see clips of him killing Nazis in, in some of his movies. And so right. I think you're right that Leo does a good job of portraying an okay actor. Yeah. And it takes a really good actor to play an okay actor. Yeah, not, you know? just an, uh, not just an okay actor, but an okay actor at their worst and at, you know, their... A little above average parts, you know what I mean? Like they, you see him at his worst, and then you see him kind of coming back into maybe what he once was. Yeah, it's like there's a lot of uh, nuance in all of that, and I think uh, Leo does a good job at at all of it. How did you feel about all the just the way that uh, Quinn kind of plays with 
form and stuff. Like, like obviously you see scenes where they feel like they're part of the movie and then it, it ends up being you're on a set. And then there's parts of it where it's just showing the, you know, the old black and white footage um, on set. And there's kind of a bunch of different scenes that play with the medium throughout, I feel like. Yeah, I found it a little disorienting at times. Yeah. You see a scene from this new pilot, but it's not like... It doesn't have an establishment shot to where you know that you're on on set. Right. I go back and forth. Some of what they do with that is kind of fun. He, like, flubs a line, and mm-hmm. we have to, like, go back. And it's, it is kind of funny how they, like, camera goes back <laughs> to position one. Right. I felt similar. I do think it was there was parts where it felt like they were fun elements, but I'm also wondering if those elements are also kind of, like, fan service to the film industry folk. Speaking of kind of disorienting or just, I just questioned Tarantino's decision making throughout this movie. One thing was like why they had the, in like the third act, why uh, they they switch over to like a narrator. Right. And, and, I, and I feel like, and I, maybe it's just because I'm accustomed to this, but when I hear that, I think of either like an epilogue to a movie or the start of something mm. and it kind of cuts, it cut the the tension of the the plot regarding the Manson because it comes after Cliff goes to Spawn Ranch and all this stuff and you, you gain more tension between him and the Manson family. And then, yeah, it goes into that whole narrated sequence and it feels like it's like something that would happen after the close of a movie where you're figuring out how each character ends up. And so it kind of deflated some of that for me. Right. Well, and, and for me, Kurt Russell's the one doing that narration. Yeah. And my immediate thought was he played a character in the in the movie also, and I think did a good job. That was one I didn't mention earlier. But my thought was, why is this character narrating now? You know, yeah. I, I didn't separate the two from Kurt Russell, the narrator, and Kurt Russell, the guy that plays the uh, stunt coordinating foreman mm-hmm. or whatever. I can't tell why he made that decision because it's either to me, if he actually made it because he had that, like, in mind before making or you know during the process of making this and it was um i just don't know why he did and if it wasn't then it seems like it was a way to speed the plot up and then that and in that way it seems kind of lazy or it seems like hey maybe you need to restructure this movie to where this makes more sense because it was like all of this happened as kind of a hangout movie and then there's this piece of uh this narrated sequence that feels like it's an end to some of these characters and then the conflict comes back. And to me, it took me out of being all in on the movie. Like, I don't think it was poorly. I don't think the sequence was poorly done or anything. I think just having that in there kind of deflated the conflict for me. It definitely feels like a retroactive decision. Like, maybe they did test screenings and audiences were confused, so they had to add explanation to what was happening. Yeah. It, I, I got the same sense that it, it didn't make sense as a initial decision it seemed like something they were trying to fix yeah that's how i felt one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie it may be my favorite scene was the bruce lee sequence Mm -hmm. um i really loved how really from the moment brad pitt hops up on top of the house to fix the antenna yeah and we see for the first time his stuntman right skills yeah and then Brad Pitt takes his shirt off, and it just blows my mind that that guy looks like that. He looks like he was made in a lab. It's insane how attractive Brad Pitt is. <laughs> but then it goes into two things. He's thinking back to a memory about when he was on set 
and essentially got into a fight with Bruce Lee. Mm -hmm. But also in that sequence, you see the he killed his wife bit and it shows him on a boat with his wife and she's just like nagging and screaming Mm -hmm. at him basically. Yeah. And you see him holding this like harpoon gun and it's like, and she moves into the the path, the path, the trajectory. And then it, (laughs) and it just cuts away. So it, it really, it's, it does a good job of making you think, Oh, he really did kill his wife. But we don't blame him. <laughs> that's that's at least that's the way I felt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't know what to think of that that whole scene. I mean, I do love the the Bruce Lee scene. I'm trying to figure out when I was watching it, I did feel like the their depiction of Bruce was like off to me and to me it was like, Okay, it's Quentin Tarantino, he's gonna do what he wants to do with these characters. But I don't know. It seemed like obviously it's such a respect and reverence for Sharon Tate's character and then it's just a funny way to funny way to portray Bruce, I think. Yeah, I mean he definitely comes off as pretty arrogant in this. And and arrogant and then just goofy. Like he he seems like a goofball. Right yeah, they're they're really kind of exaggerated and it feels very much like parody. Right. And the and them the scene itself I think is is great and effective and like and plays out in a funny way. It just the actual depiction of of Bruce Lee rubbed me the wrong way from the beginning, so I was like... Well, and it's worth noting that I think some family members of his have spoken out against the movie, saying he would never talk about Muhammad Ali like that. What I did like, A, was just the actual fight scene that they had. Yeah. The the way that that Brad Pitt, (laughs) you know, Bruce Lee says, am I saying something funny? And he's just like... Yeah, you kind of like he doesn't like he knows he should just shut his mouth, but he can't. Right. I I really like it for the characterization it adds to Brad Pitt's character. I completely agree with that. And so he's like he can't keep his mouth shut, even though he knows he should. And so when Bruce Lee's like, "All right, let's let's do this," he just like goes with it and like slams him into the side of a car, which was pretty hilarious. Yeah. But then you actually get to see Cliff Booth's stunt skills you see his fight like he's actually going toe-to-toe with bruce lee and doing well whether or not that's actually accurate to what a normal stunt guy could do is i don't know yeah but i did i appreciated the scene for the characterization of yeah and then it go going right back to him on the roof and kind of having a chuckle at himself right it's great idea i do think that it works well in the film i just had that one quibble with it how do you feel about the the spawn ranch scene i thought it was drawn out way too long i think they do a really good job of making you like Brad Pitt's character. Mm-hmm. And so, because he's kind of doing the right thing. He's He knows his, his friend owns Spawn Ranch. Mm-hmm. And so he wants to make sure he's okay and not getting taken advantage of. And so he's going to basically check up on him. And he's asking a lot of questions to these young people, the young hippies. And it really kind of drags. It takes a long time for him to finally actually get into the house mm-hmm. and then get into the bedroom where the guy is napping. Yeah. And then even then, nothing that interesting came of it. He just kind of wakes up. He's a grumpy old man. He's like, yeah. why'd you wake me up? They're allowed to be here. I've given them permission. And then Brad Pitt, you know, just leaves and they're like screaming at him. And then they, they bust his tire. Right. I thought that was kind of cool. Him just beating the hell out of the <laughs> hippie for a minute. They, the, the girls say, go get Tex, and mm-hmm. the dude rushes over there just to see that Brad Pitt had left. So right. it felt pretty anticlimactic. It, it was kind of long. I liked that it added further characterization to Brad Pitt and that he's a guy that overall is trying to do the right thing and, you know, didn't uh, give in to the girl that was under 18 that was right. offering to 
do sex stuff. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, for those reasons, I appreciated it, but man, it, it dragged. Yeah, I'm there. I, I don't mind it as much, um, or I don't mind it dragging as much because I feel like tension was kind of building throughout. And then, but like you said, it kind of ended with nothing. And then whatever conflict was, was building in it was kind of some of it taken out when, when he leaves. Um, but you, you get the sense that there's going to be more of these people. And if you know the story, then you're certain of that. Um, you just don't know how it's going to play out in the movie. But like I said, the whole third act narration part, the conflict that was built during that long drawn out thing kind of just fizzles away when you hear this kind of a voice with a different tone just talking about all these things that are now happening. I think that's my big takeaway with this thing is like, I don't know if Quentin Tarantino knew what he wanted out of this movie, or maybe he did and it just didn't come across to me because I think it would have been great as just a kind of hangout movie about these characters that are washed that, um, up and, and trying to figure out what to what to do with themselves as uh, New Hollywood's coming, or if it focused, you know, more on the, the Manson stuff. But the way it kind of interweaves those those storylines and stuff it felt a little off to me and it also felt like it made me question throughout why tarantino was making these specific decisions yeah um and i knew he to me it was like oh he he's very interested in all these things so he tries to put them together but it just didn't work for me it wasn't quite there although like i said there's plenty about it that i did like well as we approach talking about the ending yeah i'll i'll give you my biggest issue with the film cool is that Rick Dalton, our main character, there's no real arc for him that I gleaned. He doesn't really run into any real conflict. The final scene, there's a physical conflict, Mm -hmm. but I don't really see any sign of growth. He doesn't really have to go through anything. I, I think who he is at the very beginning and who he is at the very end are pretty similar. Mm hmm. And so it kind of goes along with with what you're saying of you don't, you don't exactly know what Tarantino was trying to what story he was trying to tell. My thought is, yeah, what what was the point of hanging out with this character if he didn't grow or change or there wasn't any real conflict? And I don't think characters always have to grow in a certain way, and I'm fine with watching their story over a period of time and they could shift one way or the other. They don't have to become better. They can get deeper into what they're already into or whatever. But when you mix that with what Tarantino was trying to do with the Manson murders and stuff too, I just don't think it adds up to something great that some people are saying this is. We can talk about the, the ending now though. Yeah, let's talk about the ending. So so we are going to spoil the end of the movie. So if you have not seen the film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, maybe pause right here or skip ahead to our Jackie Brown discussion and come back later once you've seen it. Spoiler alert so the big dramatic conclusion of this film is rick and cliff come back from italy after rick's done some spaghetti westerns over there he's got a new italian wife and they get really drunk together because it's their last night because he can't afford to have cliff on payroll anymore essentially and so they go out and get drunk and come back to his house this is the night that in real life, the first Manson murders happened. Mm-hmm. In this version of the story, the members of the Manson family pull up onto Cielo Drive, and Rick Dalton's there, and he's drunk, and he's making margaritas, and their car muffler's really loud, and he gets out and screams at them. So they leave. Well, they, they, get, they get off the street, but then basically because of that conflict, they decide to go and kill 
the people in Rick Dalton's house and not Roman Polanski's house. But Cliff is there. He has just smoked a acid dip cigarette. And essentially, they show up and try to kill people. And Rick and his dog, Brandy, make short work of them. And then Rick pulls out the flamethrower from <laughs> from his World War II movie and torches the last right. one. And Which is just an outrageous bit. Right. By all accounts, the day is saved. But Cliff gets stabbed in the process, has yeah. to go to the hospital. And the movie ends with the neighbors basically saying, hey, what happened? Are you okay? Do you want to come hang out? And he goes up and hangs out with Sharon Tate and her three house guests. Mm-hmm. And those people that in real life were murdered that night get to live. Right. Which to me, I don't think I was super surprised by that just because of the alternate ending that Inglorious Bastards had. Right. So it seemed in line with what he's done before. Um, although the particular events that played out, I wasn't necessarily uh, predicting, but, but the whole ending as being some like huge surprise twist, uh, it didn't have that sort of effect on me because he's done it before. And then the other thing, I think the flamethrower bit was was really funny and great, <laughs> a great callback. Both Rick and Cliff were just so funny throughout this whole part. But yeah, it was something that just kind of escalated really quickly out of nowhere. And this is the question we have with Quentin Tarantino is like, where does the excessive violence go over the line? And you have all these like, um, was it useful in this story? We knew that it happened before and now he's, you know, changing the, the course of history. The one thing that I don't completely understand is why he has the ability to change whatever he wants to because he made an ending of his own like why charles manson's not more involved in these things happening because he's clearly getting i mean people in the theater was were cheering and the crowd reaction was huge during this part for sure but you're wondering i mean so he's taking revenge out on these characters that did terrible things to me i kind of was left wondering after thinking about it just kind of why Charles Manson shows up one time and then there's no real conclusion with his his character or he has no uh, punishment or retribution on that side of Yeah, for all we know, the rest of the Manson murders still happen. Later. Yeah, or he doesn't. Just if you have the ability to take revenge on characters, it was it was hard watching Cliff's character bust a girl's head. In. Right. It was like, gruesome. Yeah, for sure. And specifically in the context of knowing that she's getting the brunt of this violence and then the crowd's cheering when in reality they're... When she's just a puppet and there's a puppet master behind the scenes. <laughs> that you, have, you have no idea what happens to him or, you know, he had the ability to do whatever he wanted and include him in this in this sequence yeah. or whatever the case. It's, I don't know. It just, it, it came across as kind of a weird, I got a weird feeling. I mean, I, <laughs> both of us in theater are like, Jesus Christ. Uh, it, it is. I mean, I enjoyed it, but it was definitely like, holy shit. This yeah. Is, this is intense. Over the top violence. Yeah. Yeah. It does make you think because he does kill Hitler in Inglorious Bastards, right? Yeah. So why not kill Charles Manson in this movie? If, you're try- <laughs> if, the, if it's the same kind of idea of you're, right. you're taking revenge on the bad guys of history. Right. Why not have him show up and bash his brains in? Yeah. That's an interesting idea. I hadn't thought about it really. So I think looking back on that, I mean, I still didn't, even when it was happening, it's like, oh, you, you initially get the, there's the shock factor to it. And you have the satisfaction of these people that are really out to 
like commit terrible crimes, get what's coming for them. While there's still like humor throughout of Brad Pitt's character being on acid and it's like right. and Rick, Rick just floating in the pool and just being completely <laughs> with surprised his headphones on, right? Completely oblivious crazy to all the shit going running on. out uh, of his house. <laughs> so all of it is just like ridiculously funny. And then I don't know if I have an answer for this, but what in his throughout his nine films, his excessive use of violence, like. Is there a message in each of those? Is some of it just fun? Is it necessary? Uh, and then what? at what point is it too much like and clearly still terrible people doing terrible things, getting, you know, what's coming for them? It just It's an interesting question. And definitely even there's even a scene in Jackie Brown that I think doesn't age well mm-hmm. that we'll talk about. But it's it's the the chicks who like guns sequence yeah. at the beginning where they're watching yeah. that on tv yeah i was watching that and i was like oh this well to me i think that was what it seemed clearly like a an ironic sort sure. of thing in that but, but... It, it's still like just watching something like that now especially because of the the amount of mass shootings that right, are happening right, right. In, in our country it's just like Ugh. that that just leads to a larger question of a does the violence in these movies have the right intention to begin with or or does it land when the movie's made and also how does it age, right? Right. And I think I want to, I don't know, I haven't listened to enough interviews or, or maybe I've just never heard this, but like him directly respond to those kind of questions, because I think it is an important thing, even if the effect is people thinking about the violence in these films. And I don't know, I think, I think it, it's an effective way to show people what we're capable of and all of all of that. I don't know if his intention going into it is that all the time because I think some of it is just fun pulpy violence which um some people are into or whatever. And I, but I'm I'm wondering if at what points is it a commentary? At what points is it supposed to be fun? And then where do those blend and stuff like that? I think it's always something that Quentin Tarantino fans have had to deal with and For sure. I'm just still I still haven't gotten gotten further in, into like finding a clear answer for it. I don't yeah. think I, I've never come to a conclusion on, on my own or heard someone else kind of work through that in a way that is uh, satisfying to me. I don't know. Well, in addition to that, the thing that I struggle with, and we'll, we probably talk about it when we talk about Jackie Brown, yeah. is less the violence and more of the use of the n-word yeah well, whether, whether no matter who like whether or not it's a black character or a white character right. speaking it it's like if the white guy wrote it is it okay you know it, yeah it, I, I especially in, in movies like django which it's just constantly said but that's obviously about slavery right and so there's times when in context it might seem appropriate and there's times when it just seems like an excessive use of yeah. the word so but even in pulp fiction Right. The character that Tar- Quentin Tarantino plays in that thing, in that movie, says the N-word several times. It's just like, ah, did you, did you need to? <laughs> yeah. It's did a, you really need it's to? A weird, it's a weird relationship there with him in that and, word. But at, at the same time, like, clearly Samuel Jackson doesn't, doesn't have a problem with it. Or I don't know. I mean, I, right. haven't, I haven't done a lot of research, but he's still in the movies, you mm-hmm. know? He's been in, what, like six of, of the them, nine yeah. or something? So, I don't know. Yeah. We've never really gotten a, a clear answer on i think they've all kind of just been a part of the quentin tarantino package yeah but as far as the ending of the movie goes though 
definitely from the first time I saw it to the second time, once I had the context of all the different people involved in, in the Manson murders, and very specifically getting it from the You Must Remember This podcast where it goes into such depth where you feel like you really get an understanding of who Sharon Tate was, who Jay Sebring was, right. and all and of the who, different players. Yeah, and who the th- you know the three people are that go like they, she goes really in in depth of those uh, describing those three characters and getting an idea of who they were after they did those crimes as well. Right, and so watching the film the second time, the ending where where Rick Dalton actually goes up and like. Sharon Tate just gives him a hug and they like, it sounds like they're going to just hang out that evening together. And, mm-hmm. and you get all four of the people that were in the Polanski residence standing out there in the driveway and they get to live. And mm-hmm. once I had the context, that ending actually was really touching to me. It was, yeah. it was all that to say that the first time I watched the film, the ending was fine. The second time, I'll, albeit there's still a lot of issues I have with the film. It was nice to see these people that were murdered get a chance to live right it was nice it was nice i'm trying to think of using that as a tool in a film is it something that is like unfair emotionally like i mean of course we like it is it an easy way to get people to like something is like change change history in a way that of course everyone's gonna like that like giving the dead people a happy ending yeah like that yeah i mean um i i think the whole point of the movie in a lot of ways, was to what? What would it be like if the bad guys lost and the good guys won this time? Yeah, you know. So it's like it, I, I think for yeah, maybe it's just for me. I'm I'm thinking of like he's done it. He's done it before. Like how how many times before it becomes like an easy an easy ending or something? I yeah. don't know. Maybe that's being too hard. It seemed like a fresh thing to do in Inglorious Bastards. It was a surprise, and it seemed like the payoff was there, and it seemed like a something I hadn't seen before using that same thing again has less of a payoff for me. Although I think everyone likes what happened, right? Of course, like you're right. But I think what you just said, I think the word payoff is, is the perfect word to use there because, um, what I think glorious bastards did really well was, and maybe because everyone knows who the Nazis were and how bad they were, mm-hmm. everyone's got that historical context. Maybe it was easier, but I feel like there was a less of a payoff in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because we don't really get to know Sharon Tate that well. Yeah, they don't. He doesn't build the story in other aspects outside of Rick and Cliff to mm-hmm. make that ending pay off the way the other films maybe have. Right, and to me, that's part of like. Because what he does in Inglorious Bastards is he sets it up from the very beginning. You know who's terrible, and you you don't have to. I mean, we clearly have the context from all of us learning about that part of history, but also the first like amazing sequence in that in that movie is super high tension right. and sets sets up who's you know who uh, in the story are, are the is the bad and the good or whatever. But, right, and then, you get a villain. Right, of Christoph Waltz. And and then the payoff being less, like you are saying the first time you, you saw it, is that is that your fault or his? <laughs> I would put it on the movie, and I think that now that you're saying this, it, it makes total sense, and this movie never really establishes a villain. Not that all movies need it, but the three Manson family members that attack and end up getting murdered or getting killed in the process 
we don't have a lot of an emotional connection with, even though we've met the characters before, not really in any significant way. We know mm-hmm. one of them's name is Tex. That's really it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the triumph over them is never that deeply felt, I guess, because they were never never set up as a proper opposing force to begin with. Yeah. So I think you make a good point. Yeah, I think they are more of that if you you know a lot about the story, certainly. Right. But um, as far as just taking the film at face value, I think a lot of that is is lost throughout the movie or never or never uh, introduced or whatever. So overall, I think you're definitely more inclined to like this film if you have a, if you know a lot about the historical context of the events of the Manson murders. Right. And I think you you will enjoy it more if you. Uh, are familiar with the film industry and Hollywood and and in the late 60s and stuff. For sure. The You Must Remember This podcast definitely gives a lot of that context. Yeah, so if you, a great depiction, for sure. If you haven't seen the film and are planning on seeing it, highly recommend at least listening to a handful of those episodes. I, I felt after the first five or six that I probably had enough context to go watch that movie. Yeah. But definitely the whole thing gives you a, a good, rounded reference point for that time absolutely overall did you like it did you have happy tears at any point that's always a question no i don't honestly i think i maybe could have had a deeper connection to the sharon tate watching herself scene if i wasn't either like awaiting something in the uh in the theater or i found myself Wondering when things were going to shift a little bit because it sets up the story with knowing that uh, Sharon and Roman are the, the neighbors. Yeah. So at some point I was, I think I was kind of like, well, when, when is this story going to kind of keep go moving forward? And I had a little bit of that in my head. So I feel like my emotional connection wasn't as quite there as much as the, uh, the wonder of the, the universe of, 1969 Hollywood was there. Right, right, right. You remember when we got out of the film the first time and I said it just felt like a first act? Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I th- I think what I was feeling that they didn't establish any any villain or obstacle until literally right before that scene where the Manson family members die. Mm-hmm. And so that felt like they were finally setting up, all right, these are the bad guys. Mm-hmm. And then the movie was over. So that to me was like... Because that's, it seems like a pretty standard sh- story structure of, you know, act one is where you set all the, you set the table, you, you right. get all the, the, the players. and Yeah, I, I think I mostly agree with that. I think there's a little bit thrown in when Cliff goes to Spawn Ranch. There's just an eeriness about it so that the kind of feeling, the change in the music and all of that makes you feel like this isn't the end of these people's story. Like I was talking about earlier, you know, there's not particular people that they're in conflict with I guess, um, right. except Tex seems like he's maybe a force to be reckoned with as well. Clearly, not saying every movie has to have a a villain character, um, but it just seems like throughout this film, it, whether it be a opposing character or uh, like an ob- like you're saying an obstacle, I just don't think they were super strong. I agree. Yeah, no happy tears really for me either. I liked the movie 
But now that we've had this conversation, I th- I'm realizing how much less I like it than I thought I did. <laughs> You're allowed to like it however much you like. No, I, I know. But like a lot of your points are very good. And, and they were things that I think subconsciously was thinking but didn't realize it. So it's like I, did, I, I liked it okay the first time. I liked it more the second time. It's probably somewhere in the middle. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah, and I think maybe there's some things I'm not giving credit to just because they're, you know, I've overlooked them thinking about some of the things that bothered me. But um, overall, I don't put this near the top of his his work. There's parts of it that are definitely fun and are fun to watch in the theater. And I think that this might get some sort of classic treatment from fans and people will watch this for a long time. You think so? I think just because of the the setting and what it captures, I think so. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is still in theaters, so definitely go check it out, see if you agree with anything that we had to say. And if you don't have the context on the Manson murders, we definitely recommend uh, doing some research beforehand. Yep, and we both saw this for the first time in 35mm, and that was cool. I would definitely try to see this while it's in theaters. It's a good theater experience. For sure. Um, It's a very big film. Yeah, and just being a part of the story because you're in a movie theater, it's kind of like, that part's kind of cool too. What do a stewardess, a gunrunner, a bail bondsman, an ex-con, a federal agent, and a beach bunny have in common? You don't come in on this thing with me. You got to be prepared to go all the way. They're all chasing a half million in cash. What do you miss? Half a million dollars will always be missed. Let him get the money and then just take it from him. She's trying to play your ass against me, huh? That was fun. So Jackie Brown is Quentin Tarantino's third feature film. Came out after Reservoir Dogs and uh, Pulp Pulp Fiction. Fiction, Jackie Brown is the story about a character named Jackie Brown who is essentially, she works for an airline and smuggles money for an arms dealer that lives in L.A. Really from the get-go in the opening scene, she gets pulled aside by federal agents and she's in trouble and essentially spends the whole movie... Doing magic. Yeah, trying to work her way through uh, a mess. Exactly, and masterfully pulls off a heist of her own, basically. Mm-hmm. In the research that I've done, it, it seems like it's Tarantino's kind of love letter to 1970s black exploitation uh, style films. The lead character, Jackie Brown, is played by Pam Greer, who was in, I believe, six exploitation films in the 1970s, including Foxy Brown mm-hmm. and another one called Coffee that I, apparently heavily influential on this film. I had never really seen any exploitation films. I did get a chance to watch Foxy Brown in preparation for this discussion. I didn't learn a ton. I just It just gave me an idea of kind of what films in the exploitation movement were like. And, yeah. and I got to learn a little bit because I didn't really know anything about what exploitation film was. I have an idea. Yeah, I mean, I've I've seen a couple, um, especially like just them being on TV. Like, I know what the tone is like. Um, I know what they were. I have also seen several kind of parodies on them or whatever, like something like Black Dynamite. Right. Um, obviously, um, I'm familiar with what they are, but I'm not super familiar with the, a ton of the content. I guess I just I haven't watched a ton of them. Yeah. yeah. Just to give a little background, black exploitation is short for black exploitation, and that comes from the term exploitation film. It's a term that they coined for films that exploit trends 
of movies. So any film that is essentially following the trends of the time is considered an exploitation film. So an example of that I read was like Night of the Living Dead was considered an exploitation film mm-hmm. because of the way it, it sort of the trends of B-movie horror films. Yeah, yeah. And so black exploitation was a subgenre of the exploitation film where there were films primarily targeted towards uh, African-American communities mm-hmm. and more, more often than not, they're like kind of kung fu cop spy thriller films and they're pretty much all B-movies. Like yeah. that's, that's part of the, uh, the package. Op- right. They often involve some sort of crime and solving, I mean, exaggerated characters right. in, in line with the style of, of the day or whatever. Yeah. So what did you think? I really enjoyed it. It was such a, a curveball from Quentin Tarantino. Just, I mean, there's some parts of the, the style that are reminiscent of his other work, but it seemed much more grounded and less wacky characters. You still get great characters, great dialogue, especially with Jackie's character. It's something that I hadn't really seen from Tarantino before, but most closely to, related to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and its depiction of kind of some ordinary people maybe and then we can go more into this later but i think there's like a tenderness to this movie that's not in any of his others um it was a nice change of pace and it was interesting how you went from pulp fiction reservoir dogs to this and then he kind of goes back um which i assume that this wasn't getting the the rave reaction that his first two did so he went back to form but I kind of wish he would maybe went back and forth between, you know, outrageous characters that are all, you know, have a bunch of snappy dialogue, but yeah. it's like ridiculous and eloquent at the same time. Right. You know, like it's, yeah. that's why it's so funny. I don't know if it did well. I don't know what the initial reaction was to it, but I know it kind of sits in, in the deeper parts of his filmography and is talked about less than the others. Definitely, I would say underrated. Yeah. For sure. I also enjoyed this film. I thought it was... Exciting without ever being this, the excitement super was, action heavy, right? And it was very subtle, but subtle it was excitement, as yeah. it progresses, you can see from from kind of the get go that Jackie is her greatest skill is is maybe just um, influencing others to do what she wants in a very subtle way. I guess she mm-hmm. kind of plays people, right? She's kind of a uh, not a con artist even because I think she's an honest. She's an honest person. Yeah. But she has this power of influence, especially over men, I mm-hmm. think. I think that's that's a big part of this film. Yeah, I think that, that she's one of his best characters over the course of, of his career. He's had great, funny characters, like we talked about, and very memorable lines, like memorable scenes. But you don't always get a character this realized in the in the world that you can kind of connect with or that has some sort of tenderness or real life qualities to them. This was, it was funny. I heard Mark Kermode, I think that's how you say it. He's a film reviewer. I, I keep up with now quite a bit um, and really like what he has to say, but he, I think his theory was that this was his first film where his characters had a voice to themselves and not Quentin Tarantino's voice. Ah, oh, that I couldn't agree with more. That's so great. So she has a, you know, Jackie has an independent voice and has independent thoughts and stuff like that. And I do think that that's right. I think that's pretty clear. You get an idea of her intentions throughout this. And I think some of the relationships are great. I still think that the acting is great and the characters are wonderful throughout the the film. Again, I think this has a, a killer soundtrack. Oh, I think, the soundtrack's awesome. I think 
Yeah, it's just another representation of Tarantino's great soundtracks. But it still, you know, keeps up with some of the slick, funny dialogue, especially in Ardell's character. But you get a mix. uh, It's mixed in with those more grounded characters, which is really nice. And I think Jackie is a very composed character and confident, but you get a lot of the humanity uh, of her characters shown through just some of these pretty nuanced small scenes of her like thinking about what the consequence could be or or you just see it on her face or sh- her rehearsing the whole gun sequence or oh, whatever that was awesome yeah and you, and you see a little bit more of um humanity in this character that he didn't always show there's yeah. vulnerability yeah to her too that's um, really great but she's still yeah she's still confident and and smart and is playing some people along the way and you're in it with her because she's trying to get played as well right so it's who can who can one up the other for sure I'll say there's some there's some cool shots throughout that I I liked. I still love the you know shots from the trunk of a car. I looking love that up too. At, yeah, I think it's a cool a cool technique. And then there's the the scene where Adele goes like around the block, and there's like this sense of menace in the scene. You kind of know what's about to happen. And it's one take. Yeah, and the, uh, the I think, camera starts low with the with the car. Yeah. And he pulls off, and it does a big. You know, cranes up and over right. his fence. It, oh, I love that shot. Yeah, so much. I think it's really effective, really great, and it's that. Yeah, the the actual technical part of the it being one shot is pretty pretty awesome. I even like the just starting from the very top, the the opening of the film where it's her. It feel it felt almost kind of Spike Lee esque. Mm-hmm. She's on you know she's in the airport. She's going and on, on that. The... Uh, moving sidewalk thing yeah right? and and the camera just st- sticks with her the whole time as as the opening credits come up I, yeah i think I really it's like really that. cool too it's, it's stylistic as well fun little thing i noticed was so that wall that she's going i'm assuming she's in lax and i don't know if that's a famous wall you know it's like the tiled right. colored tiles is that a famous i don't thing? know because it's once upon a time in hollywood they have a that same wall is in that movie when they come back from italy and it's like a slow-mo uh, walking scene of, of Rick and his new Italian wife. Yeah, and then Cliff yeah. is pushing the bags. It's in front of that same wall. That's cool. I didn't notice that. Yeah. So right after that intro, you know, she, she's going to work basically. And she gets to her gate and does her thing. Right. Then we go, the The movie really starts with Ordell and uh, Robert De Niro's Lewis mm-hmm. in that apartment watching Chicks Who Love Guns. <laughs> yeah. The first thing I wrote down, I love Robert De Niro's quote-unquote De Niro face. Yeah. He does that, you know, like he's sitting there listening to Ordell talk about guns and he's just like nodding along. <laughs> it's just like, it's so classic De Niro. Yeah. And you know what I love is disheveled De Niro. Yeah. It's a new thing. It's so great. It's so different than like Goodfellas mm-hmm. or any of the, you know, even Raging Bull or, or or a lot of the Scorsese stuff he does. I loved Robert De Niro in this movie. I think he is yeah. one of my favorite parts. Yeah, he's just kind of <laughs> like always, yeah. along for the ride. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of talked about this earlier, but Chicks Who Love Guns was rough for me to watch now, yeah. given the way guns have played a part in our, our culture lately. Yeah. Did that bother you at all or was it, did it, were you okay with it? Well, I don't think it bothered me because I felt it was supposed to be ridiculous. Right. So I thought that it was like a, this TV show is just so dumb and ridiculous and that I thought that that's what it was trying to portray. But if it wasn't, then maybe I would have a different view. I just, I, yeah. I felt when I saw it, I was like, something like this existed is so outrageous and that they had shows similar to this. Uh, is rough. 
But <laughs> before we get any further, yeah, can we just acknowledge that everything about Sam Jackson's appearance is offensive in this film? Like a depiction of a slimy character, right? His look is is wild. I hate it. <laughs> but it it works for the character. It makes sense. Yeah. But it just. Well, yeah, I mean, he's a gross character and he plays a different character with whoever he's around so he's slimy in that way too i feel like he knows how to work people and uh his interactions with max are quite different than his interactions with jackie and and lewis and and stuff so i definitely think he did a, a wonderful job at playing all those characters in a believable way chris tucker was was funny too Chris and Tucker was great. Yeah. Honestly, the scenes between Sam Jackson and Chris Tucker, I think, were so good. Most Me of too. them were long, long takes outside mm-hmm. of the apartment. Right. It's just like a st- static camera. And then the same thing you mentioned the the looking out of the trunk scene. Yeah. That is one long take of them arguing about whether or not he's going to get into the trunk, and mm-hmm. it's like two minutes. I mean, it's it's yeah a fair amount of dialogue, and and they do it so well. Yeah, they look so natural. It's so natural. Really funny. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so right after that, is that's the um, kind of menacing long take where he drives the car around the block yeah. and, and then opens the trunk and, and shoots Beaumont, which we both have said already. It's it's really, I really, really love that shot. Yeah. Very, it really establishes that this guy's a ne'er-do-well. <laughs> after that is really the first time we get to know Jackie Brown. Um, the first thing that happens is she gets picked up by federal agents what i think was really great she's in an interrogation room getting interrogated by by two guys one of which is michael keaton the other guy i don't know so she's in trouble and then she goes to jail and then she gets bailed out by ordell and she's really she seems like a victim she seems like kind of helpless and kind of in trouble Mm -hmm. really from the get-go the first time i saw it i thought that's just how she was was she's she's kind of a helpless victim in this even through the scene where Ordell comes to her apartment, right? And it's ve- another kind of menacing thing. He's asking her all these questions about what she said to the feds. He turns out the lights like twice because mm-hmm. she turns it back on. And then the moment comes where he's like kind of all up in her face. It's dark. And the great line. Is that what I think it is? What do you think it is? I think it's a gun pressed up against my dick. <laughs> well, you thought right. Now take your hands from around my throat, nigga. Everything that I knew about Jackie Brown up until that point, it flips. And now she's in charge. She's got a gun pointed at his dick. Mm-hmm. And really from there to the end of the movie, she's like, she's taken charge the whole movie, which makes me think retroactively that her being the victim and, and being helpless was her. She She's working on these guys. She's yeah. She's... It's all part of the plan. Yeah, I think it's maybe a little bit of both. Like, I think she, I mean, she does have to do quite a bit of improvising and she doesn't always have it all together, although she has to, to be able to complete all of these tasks. And at every turn, she's, she has to be confident and, and able to do the next thing in order to get ahead. But I'm just saying, I don't know if it's all super calculated as much as it's like she knows she has to put that on in order to win the game. Right. Makes her a good player. Yeah, but I feel like if it was played out to where she was just a hundred percent like badass the in all of these events, then you would lose some of her, you know, the humanity of her character, or and, and you wouldn't connect 
nearly as much with her. But I think there's times when you sense a little bit of doubt or a sense of like of her thinking through some things or how she's going to actually get there is where the movie kind of shines and, and where you, you're more on her side. If you didn't have those, it would, to me, it'd be much more stale kind of point A to point B right. sort of movie. Because it is, it plays out like a, you know, like a crime film. Sure. There are some pretty specific narrative points that are just pretty straightforward. And I think where the movie shines is in the characters. Yeah. Speaking of of characters, you've got Max Cherry. Yeah. Who's, I think, does a really, really great job. I think he's great. I And honestly, theory I'm working on here, a sign of a good actor is how do they sound when they're talking on the phone? <laughs> <laughs> And that's that, good. that whole first scene when Ordell comes in yeah. and he's talking to somebody about their bail bond. Right. It's just like he's truly annoyed with them, but he, he's doing his job. It's just he does a really good job. And yeah. he's on the phone a lot in this movie. Yeah, I, feel yeah. like. I, I think Robert Forrester does a really great job. He depicts this person kind of stuck in the daily grind of doing something for a long time and being bored with it, but also kind of questioning what that means in the bigger picture of his life if he's kind of uh, has a purpose or whatever. You see a complete shift when he's introduced to Jackie Brown's character when he bails her out. And I think that whole scene's pretty lovely. Yeah. And the song it's playing and the kind of the lighting of the whole thing, you could tell he... I don't know that there's a, a shift in his demeanor and you get that this might be something that he's walking into a new chapter of his life or something. Especially later when when it's kind of revealed that he basically says, yeah, I decided to change my whole life Thursday night or whatever. And right. It was, it was the night that he met her. Yeah. We can talk about their relationship more, but that's, def- that's you know, one of my favorite parts of this film. Um, it just seems just really natural and... I love that they don't get too much into the... I mean, they, they could have gone with the, like, falling in love from the get-go trope and them fighting together against to save her or whatever, but I don't think it ever falls into that. I think it plays out really naturally and cool. Her character does a great job of... Because she's got to kind of keep him, I think, at arm's length. Yeah. Because she's got to keep everyone at exactly, arm's length. Exactly, yeah. She doesn't know who's who's out to to get her. At the same time... She is getting what she wants out of him. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I think she genuinely cares about this. She she grows to care about this guy. So yeah. it is somewhat of a layered performance mm-hmm. that I think is done really well. And it's well written. Agreed. Both of those actors, from what I understand, had not had leading roles in films in, in a long time. Both of their careers were somewhat on the, the decline. I know, at least with Pam Greer, this was somewhat of a, a revitalization for her career. I'm not sure about uh, Robert Forster, though. I'm going to switch gears a little. Yeah, do it. Beepers just sound like the most complicated machines. <laughs> do you remember that, where he calls her Yeah. and leaves a message and says, hey, just wanted to see how this went. Here's my number, give me a call back. Oh, here's my work number. Oh, and here's my beeper. And it's like a number, like a like a... Seven-digit number followed by, like, a nine-digit number, and then wait and press press star six two, and it was just the most complicated thing yeah. in the world. It yeah. was really it was really funny just yeah. because he just kept talking and kept giving her ways to contact him. Also kind of a characterization of him really showing all his cards that he's going to be available to her. Yeah. But uh, it was just funny to me, the, the whole yeah. situation. Yeah. Another just funny piece of the this film is just Robert De Niro's character, uh, Lewis, which we've already talked about, but he just plays this kind of 
uh, idiot sidekick kind of role and um, something that we haven't seen from him before or that I hadn't. It was funny that Tarantino included him in this movie uh, in that way because you get kind of a fresh take of, of De Niro. But did you how did you feel about the scene with uh, him getting out of his car? Or what's the, what's the girl's character's name? Melanie? Yeah, or I guess just Melanie's character in, in the context of this. I liked Melanie's character. I think she played... I think you need that person that's mm-hmm. unhappy in the in the criminal organization, if you want to call it that. It's a pretty poorly organized organization, you know, but like <laughs> right. you've got to have that person that's pissed that's either going to blow up the plan or betray them or do mm-hmm. something. And I think. Yeah. Ne- yeah. It's just necessary. Yeah. So as far as a plot device, I thought she was good. Mm-hmm. I mean, they gave a little bit of context to who she was, but she just seemed like a stoner that she, wanted to watch TV and also wanted to be part of a gang and be involved. There's always going to be somebody that fucks everything up for everyone. Did her story go the way that you thought it would? Her um, getting shot in the parking lot was surprising, but honestly, I really, really <laughs> liked it. I like what an annoying person she was being because mm-hmm. I, I was laughing mm-hmm. and then it totally made sense that De Niro's Lewis yeah, this guy. would just like, you could see him just like, he was so chill the whole time until the pressure was on him and all of a sudden, he also seems like a professional. Yeah, like it seems like he's been uh, having a lot pent up the whole right. The whole movie. So definitely when he's going to do this job and, and the girl makes him late, it reminds me of like... Being on a film set with people that don't know what they're doing because it's like there's just a protocol. You you act a certain way. Right. You are there. You're present. You're, you, you know, this is important. We could all go to jail. And so when he, the consummate professional, is with this kind of girl that's just screwing around, he just, you can see his tension building and building until he finally blows up and... <laughs> Pops are yeah exactly. Know? It made sense for sure. <laughs> and then later, when Samuel Jackson's like, "Where's Melanie?" Oh, I've been meaning to tell you about that. Where's Melanie? Well, that's that's what I want to tell you. You see, she was bugging me the whole time. She got pissy with me because I wouldn't let her carry the bag, and then she started running a fucking mouth about you know, because like, I couldn't remember where the car was parked right away when we came out. So then she got on me about that. Is it this aisle, Lewis? Is it that aisle, Lewis? It's totally fucking with my nerves, man. So what? So, you left her there? I, I shot her. You shot Melanie? Twice. In the parking lot. You couldn't talk to her? Well, how, can you, how can you talk to her? You, know, you couldn't she, just hit her? Maybe, but I, at that, at that t- moment, I don't know. I, you shot her? Twice? Is she dead? I... I, I pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. As opposed to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, kind of from the get-go, we've got a clear villain in this that is the dragon to be slayed, right, in Ordell. At all times, Jackie's juggling a lot of people and things, right, between Ordell and the feds and Max Cherry, whether she can trust him or not, and and just trying to get her plan off the ground. The whole time, it's really just a dance between this guy who could kill me at a moment's notice and me getting the life I want. And so her obstacle at all times, although there's many smaller ones it's always going to be Ordell and I think that that is good writing it's it's a nice focused obstacle not to say that it can't be done other ways I just exactly. think I, I like the way it was handled in this film one more thought about De Niro um I really like 
De Niro's performance in this. I think he does a really good job. I already mentioned I like schlubby De Niro. Um, he does a lot of acting with his eyes in mm-hmm. this that I think is really good. Just the the his physicality is is very subtle, but especially when Melanie is driving him nuts when they're trying to perform the heist or you know whatever the the switch the swap. Yeah. But even like early on when he's at I think it's Simone's apartment and Ordell says, "Hey, I got some for your eyes only kind of shit. Come outside." And he, yeah. He opens the trunk and it shows him the dead body and just watching De Niro's eyes kind of bounce around and he's just like, he's looking at Ordell and then back to the body <laughs> around the, the street to make sure they're alone. And, and it's just, he does a really good job. Yeah. I, I, I think it's great. I think Michael Keaton's eyebrows are hilarious and <laughs> <laughs> they're just so expressive in a, in a goofy, inquisitive, like, I don't know. It's just, a, it's funny. All right, top Hollywood eyebrows of all time. <laughs> Jack Nicholson, Michael Keaton. Who else has had expressive eyebrows? I don't know how much she's expressive with them in Game of Thrones, but Emily Clark, that's her name, right? Amelia Clark. Amelia Clark, sorry. Uh, Amelia Clark's eyebrows in person are extremely es- expressive. Like are in they? interviews. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll go back and watch her. Watch her in some interviews there. They're all over the place. All right. So, uh, listeners, if you have any uh, expressive eyebrows that you're a fan of, <laughs> send uh, them our way. Send them our way, either at any of our socials or on our website. Yeah. I hope a lot of those come in. Yeah. We'll do a, I'll rip a bunch of videos and create a montage <laughs> of expressive eyebrows if I can get enough. Good. A moment I really liked. So, right before the big scene where we see all the different vantage points of, which is something else I want to talk about yeah. that I really like. Jackie is in the dressing room. Mm-hmm. She's about to make the switch of the bags with the money. Mm-hmm. She has this moment where she stops. She's wearing that new suit and she looks at the mirror and the music changes and she looks doubtful. She looks scared. Mm-hmm. The camera kind of pushes in on her reflection in the mirror. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. I think. Maybe she's putting on a brave face, but that's the real vulnerable. That's how she really feels right now. She's terrified, mm-hmm. but she's going to go out and get it done. But I don't know. Did you have any yeah, thoughts? Yeah, I, I think it was another just moment of getting a bigger picture of the character. There's more going on inside than visible on the outside. And also her realizing the stakes of what's going to happen and being aware of the consequences and stuff. I don't know. It was similar to, it's another vulnerable moment that really shows where the character's head is at. And and they talked about this a lot on that film spotting episode that you and I listened to recently where they reviewed Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and did their top five, I think it was top five Tarantino characters. Yeah. But that moment where she's practicing pulling the gun out on Ordell at the, yeah. like at the very end and she does it a bunch of times and you can tell she's like, Feels like she's not really getting it right, and but it's like the idea that these epic moments don't just come naturally, and they take practice. And right. she's she's not a spy, she's not a hitman, or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a nice reminder of who she is, but it's a, it's another point where it's just a nice characterization moment. Yeah, where you don't get a lot of that in this kind of movie. Right, and and talking about the difference between Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and Tarantino's normal style to a more grounded film like this Mm -hmm. that is a great example of grounding it right it's she's a real person 
that's trying to act as cool and badass, right. although she is badass yeah. in her own way, but like totally. these movie moments don't really happen in real life and you see her kind of in a way playing pretend and, and trying to get herself into this mindset and become this person. Totally agree. The only thing I think I have left is showing it from different angles and perspectives at the end. It adds a dimension that kind of wasn't there before. I think it ups the ups the stakes and it's a cool just a cool way of storytelling to begin with and i think the payoff at the end specifically between max and jackie is really really nice like i was talking about earlier i think it's made that way because of how carefully these two characters are crafted and i don't know if we've said this yet but this is adapted from a novel called it's two words rum punch rum punch is the name of it there it is which we have not read but maybe some of that comes from from the novel, the way that relationships crafted, um, the ending, I think, has a far greater payoff. The idea of this being a more grounded movie than maybe a lot of Tarantino's films, maybe some of that is attributed to it's an ad- adaptation right? rather than an original script. So maybe some of that work has been done for him because he's, he's just adapting something. I hadn't thought about it in those films. Yeah. Did you get happy tears at any point? <laughs> Not really in this one either, but but I did find the relationship between Jackie and Max was was great, and that was what I was emotionally connected to. So yeah, I like Tarantino a lot, but I don't know that I've ever gotten happy tears from any of his work. I like a lot of his movies, and yeah, yeah, for sure. I I've had fun watching a lot of them, but Mm -hmm. as far as happy tears, it's just it's just not his style. No, it's not his thing. Yeah, I mean, he's got one more to go. It's and if it's Star Trek. (laughs) I might be all in on that. So, <laughs> we'll see. Jackie Brown is actually was just recently added to Netflix. Yeah, and it's a good good pairing with uh, you know, the other film we're talking about here, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because it is I think the most like it in terms of if you want to say a more mature style of Quentin Tarantino, although I mean, I still love the other the other style as well. Feels but, more like the real world. Yeah. Yeah. So check them out together. Thank you for listening to Happy Tears. Happy Tears is produced by Nick Melita and Brandon Henry. Visit happytearspod.com to find resources from this episode. We'll post links to some of the things that we're watching and listening to that we mentioned at the top, as well as some other things that we mentioned throughout the podcast. You can find us on Instagram at happytearspodcast. Nick is at melitagram, and Brandon is at Mr. Brandon Henry. Be sure to connect with us and tell us what gives you happy tears, what new releases you're excited about, and what you think we should cover in a future episode. Original theme music by Homage, youtube.com slash homagebeats. On next week's episode, we will be discussing Amazon Prime's new original TV series, The Boys, which is about corrupt superheroes, as well as Michael Chabon's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay which is a fictional tale about the golden age of comic books that was published in the year 2000. We'll see you next time. Well, we won't see you. And you won't see us, but you'll hear us. (laughs) Ah, Jesus. Farewell!